Hello, and welcome to the next podcast, where we'll be looking at the wealth management firm of the future. I'm Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa, and we are thrilled to bring this very first episode of the next podcast out to our audience at WM.com, wealthmanagement.com. And I couldn't think of a better person to start with than our very first guest, Ron Bullis, the CEO of LifeWork Advisors. Ron, thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Mark, thanks for having me and uh, really excited for the conversation. And when I say that you're the perfect guest for this podcast, I, I mean it. Um, and I can give a little bit more context as to why we started this podcast and what we'll be doing with this project over the course of the year. The wealth management firm of the future is at its core a research project that we're working on in partnership with Pershing, uh, BMI Melling Pershing, to really get at what firms that are growing the fastest, firms that are the most strategic in their approach to growth, what are they doing? Right, to drive and accelerate growth. And when we talk about the wealth management firm of the future, we're not looking at where the business will be in the year 3000. We're looking at five years from now. We know how much technology has changed the game. We know how much investor and client needs have changed. But what does the wealth management firm of the future, and in particular, the firms that are the most innovative and the most successful at aligning their services with client needs, what do those firms look like from a talent standpoint, from a technology standpoint, and ultimately from a strategic standpoint? So, Ron, I've been lucky to know you for a few years now, and you're one of the most unique firms in the business. I mean that genuinely. For a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast, they are probably familiar with you and LifeWorks from a distance. But before we get into detail, would you mind just giving a little bit of background on the history of LifeWorks and also the focus and types of clients that you work with in particular? Yeah, uh, appreciate the the high praise and, and the opportunity again to be here. So LifeWorks Advisors was started in uh, spring of 2017. And at the time, we had some pretty clear objectives. We, My co-founder and I were coming out of a large uh, national insurance firm where we had been in the financial advising space. And one of our largest clients at the time had said to us, don't come back here uh, and see us, slightly tongue-in-cheek, until you can bring an invoice and I can see exactly what your fees are and I can write you a check for it. And I know that you're working for me and not for a big firm. Light bulb went off and we said, you know, we believe that we have to build a different business model, one that's based on transparency, one that's based on simplicity, and one that our client always knows what they're paying us and what they're paying us for. So as we kind of surveyed the landscape, we didn't really see that available at you know some larger firms. And so we created our RIA. And one of the first things we did is we made a subscription-based financial planning model where clients could subscribe to the right level of service that they need for themselves, their business, their family, et cetera. So LifeWorks Advisors right now, fast forward almost five years, we serve about 600 clients. We're north of 250 million, roughly, of assets under management. And every client of LifeWorks, or almost every client of LifeWorks, is subscribed to one of our financial planning services and one of our monthly on one of our monthly payment plans. So the business model was the first thing that we set up to solve. And as we did that, we ran into these challenges uh, about a year and a half in, where our workflows and our technology uh, just was really inhibiting our ability to grow. Meaning we had what are considered still some of the best software platforms out there, right? But there wasn't a all-in-one system for running an RAA and bringing scale, right, to the operation that was focused on a firm that was doing fee-based financial planning, right? So in late 2018, early 2019, we decided to start our own tech technology project. And one of the first things we built was a credit card and ACH payment processing system so that we could simplify how we were collecting fees from our clients, right? That turned into a business plan where we realized, hey, the path that we're on of building 
a client experience that wins the future and building a very modern digitally forward tech forward RIA is something that other advisors and other firms likely could benefit from too. So where we're sitting today is we're uh, about two thirds of our team are traditional advisors, CPAs, CFPs. Uh, the other third of our team are software designers, developers, quant programmers, and uh, running and developing our own in-house technology. Amazing. So do you consider yourself to be more of a wealth management firm or more of a technology firm? Uh, wealth management firm every day. Our motto, if, if we could say such, is it's client first, right? It's winning the client experience. We're not setting ourselves on a path where we believe that our future for LifeWorks is going to be best to be just a technology firm and kind of turn off what we're doing for clients. So everything that we're building and all the investments we're making in technology is to serve our clients and our advisors' clients. So at our core, we are still a wealth management firm that just has a team composition and a focus that looks radically different than most out there. Excellent. And when you're looking at hiring, you know, I know you have a lot of different roles that most, if not almost all other wealth management firms do not have. Can you tell me just a little bit about, you know, what it is that you're looking for, not just from a cultural fit, right, but really from a, a skill set um, perspective, what it is that is unique to what it is that specifically LifeWorks is building? Yeah. So, I mean, there's obviously different roles, but if we take the advisor role, for instance, one of the things that LifeWorks has been doing is we have been focusing on finding and developing and training young advisors coming right out of college or fairly early in their career, helping them obtain their CFP. And where I see my role as a CEO, one of my key jobs is to build amazing advisors that can serve clients right across a broad range of spectrums and, and even unique, unique subsets of clients. Right. So maybe a lot of traditional firms, the large firm that I came out of, the advisors who were the best salespeople tended to be the people that survived, sure. right? And tended to be the ones that were most highly rewarded. What we're looking for at LifeWorks and what I believe the future uh, firm needs to look for in hiring advisors are people who are really relationship oriented with a high degree of technical capacity. Right, meaning it's not just that they can display empathy and they can communicate well with the client, but they also have the ability to drive really technically proficient financial planning and do that in a way that allows the increasing complexity of the world that we're in to be simplified and to be aligned so the client can make better decisions. So if I pick out just that role, like how we envision the advisors that we believe are going to add the most value for our clients and have the most success at LifeWorks, they're not people that I would say... I mean, they might be good at sales, but we're not right. looking at this saying they need to be able to bring in 10 million, 20 million, 30 million of net new assets every year, right? We view the firm's responsibility as being the, the vehicle by which we attract and by which we convert people to being clients of, of LifeWorks, right? So that's maybe one distinction I would say that's unique as I talk to other you know, firm leaders and advisors in the industry. Yeah, I think that's an important distinction too, especially when just a, a little while ago when we were at the Wealth Management Edge Conference and we had a think tank to go deep on many of these issues with a group of about a dozen or so you know, very smart, very strategic RIAs and wealth management firms. Um, this idea of you know, mass customization or hyper-personalization right, came up again and again and again. Um, and it's one thing to support that through you know, technology to support the delivery of it, but you still need people right at the center of it mm -hmm. and people who are able to deliver that um, in a way that is meaningful, customized, and, and feels like it is built for a very specific individual. 
Um, with that, I mean, if you could, I actually would love to put a little color, you know, I, whether you've coined the term hy hyper personalization or hyper customization in wealth, um, or just something that I've been hearing more and more, what does that actually mean, right? In your view, and how are you executing on that at LifeWorks? So this is a phenomenal question. I don't know if we coined the term hyper personalization. I've seen it I, I've seen it referenced or sort of used in, in writings by Lionel Martellini, who's you know one of the foremost thinkers around quantitative investing and investing for the future. I've also seen it in some industry reports from McKinsey and ENY, where the, you know hyper personalization means everybody right now says that they offer personalized advice in financial planning. Let's just put that out there. Like yep. I don't know that a firm exists anywhere that doesn't say they do personal financial planning or personal investments. But whether they're an RIA, whether they're a robo-advisor, whether they're a large national firm, all roads still lead back to risk scores and model portfolios. So the hyper-personalization element means that we are going past just having personal one-to-one -one relationships or personal one-to-one -one financial plans. We actually need to build very specific solutions that are personalized to that client not a model portfolio that can be applied at scale across you know, 100, 1,000, 10,000 clients. That's not hyper-personalization. There might be some personalization of how that's implemented, but it's still using, putting people in buckets or categories based on say a risk score or based on timeline and creating these predeterministic glide paths or predeterministic type of investment solutions. So for us, hyper-personalization means two things. One, on the financial planning side, their financial planning engagement has to look different to their specific search circumstance. So if they need bite-sized engagements where they're digesting little pieces every month to get yeah. to an outcome, whether they need a more, let's say, robust or sophisticated type of analysis because they've got a pending transaction selling a business, something like that, you have to be ready to provide the planning that's personalized to how the client needs to digest it. So I would call this like the Netflixing of financial advice. They need to be able to access it when they need it. They need the information to be immediate, right? It needs to be custom to them. On the investing side, this gets to the idea, again, of saying no two clients should ever have the same portfolio at the same point in time, unless they magically happen to have the exact same DNA, the exact same family, the exact same life goals, the exact same health attributes, the exact same budget and cash flow preferences, right? And, and we know that that's not true, right? We know that's an impossibility. So... How do you deliver to a client a hyper-personalized planning framework and a hyper-personalized investing framework that is very, sp very specific and very detailed to their objectives, how they digest data, how they want to engage? And then the big question is, how do you do that at scale? You could do hyper-personalization for one client. You could maybe do it for 10 but the challenges that come in is when you think about doing this for a hundred, if you're an advisor listening to this, or if you're somebody who's owns a firm or managing advisors, how do you do this for a thousand or 10,000? The technology exists. It's, it's relatively new, but it's the completely different focus, right? Instead of the value being placed on creating a framework. So say like a model portfolio that you can scale across all clients, right? The focus should be, how do I build the systems and structures so that the portfolio that's created for that client is very specific and then dynamically managed, hyper-personalized, right, would be our term, to that specific objective. 
I, I love that because I, I don't know that there are a lot of firms that would be able to replicate or build what you're doing, but there are definitely certain principles that they can apply. And you know, I, I mentioned this when we were together at Edge, we positioned that event and a lot of the content that we were creating as it's a new era for financial advice and how do we prepare people to be successful in it. And one of the biggest things that's changed, you know, Joe Duran actually mentioned this during our interview, um, for the longest time, proximity was a huge part of an advisor's value proposition, right? If you live 20, mm-hmm. within 25 miles, great, right? You've got, you have a better chance of being my advisor than somebody who's a thousand miles away. That is now, you know, it's, I shouldn't say off the table completely, uh, but it's not as much of a, a determining factor as it has been historically, right? So I could see some of the, and here some of the principles that you're talking about with hyper-personalization, you know, applying to firms that are maybe not looking to take on 10,000 new clients, right? But might be mm-hmm. looking to take on clients in other regions. And I should ask, you know, when we look at your client base and the types of individuals that you are working with, one, who does this resonate with the most, right? And two, what mm-hmm. role, if any, does geography play in you know, your strategy for, for growing the business? So, we're interestingly enough, we very intentionally created what we call this barbell approach, not to be exclusionary to a certain like age group of people, but we built out digital marketing platforms specifically targeting early retirees and uh, near retirees. So let's say the, the younger end of the baby boomer generation, right? Um, at the same time, we've been very focused on building out marketing strategies and platforms for the next gen wealth creator is what we call them. Some people might call them Henry's, you know, like high earning, not rich yet or something like this. We just like to, you know, I, we prefer next gen wealth creators, right? Young, under 40, upwardly mobile, right? Looking for direction, planning, help, navigating the, again, the ever com- ever growing complexities of their life and their time constraints. So the interesting thing here, Mark, is that this personalization, this hyper-personalization, as we've been you know, talking to prospects and clients about it, very specifically even for just the last 12 months, it resonates at both ends of the age spectrum. If it's a younger, let's say, tech-native, 30-year-old professional, upwardly mobile, they likely have a you know, a Coinbase account. They have a Robinhood account. They have grown up in the era where if they want to watch a TV show, or if they want to listen to a podcast, everything's on their time frame when they want it, how they want it with no ads, yep. right? So we have to put ourselves, I think for somebody who's listening to this, it's like, I'm not building technology, Ron, or I, I, I don't try, I'm not trying to build a firm to serve 10,000 people. My challenge to you listening would be to put yourself in a mindset to ask yourself, can I, for whatever my practice or my firm looks like in my clients, can I continue to deliver what my clients want when they want it on their timetables, right? Without ads, right? Meaning without distractions, right? Okay? So I would say that this doesn't seem to be to us something that, that is the personalization message does not seem to have an age that it doesn't resonate with very, very strongly. On the baby boom round, real quick, if I could, you know, let's say that 55 to 65, 70 year old. They've worked with a handful of advisors over their lifetime, generally, and they felt the lack of personalization. So it's a really easy thing to focus in on and then deliver, right? I say easy in the sense that it's clear that it's a a very valuable proposition to put in front of a client. It's work to deliver on it. So let's talk about geography real quick. That'd be the second half of your question. We do find that the, the silver lining to COVID and everybody going digital for a while, for the most part, 
broke down some of those barriers more rapidly than we were thinking. When we started LifeWorks, our business plan was always to build a national practice using digital marketing and then video conferencing and stuff like that. But at the same time, in that baby boomer generation, we actually make a concerted effort to still travel to visit our clients in person once a year. It costs us money. It adds a tremendous amount of value. You still can't substitute, I don't believe, the engagement and the relationship that you build when you're in person with somebody sharing a cup of coffee or having a dialogue sitting across the table from them in in a digital format. So I would say geography shouldn't be a limiter to a firm or advisor's growth anymore, but there might be uh, still some groups probably towards the you know, closer to the, the baby boomer end of the age spectrum that still put a higher value on proximity of advisor, but it's significantly less than it was pre-COVID. And I think you know, what you just touched on with the last piece there about your focus and your just willingness and ability, <clears throat> excuse me, and the, the value of in-person is, a, is an important point because you know, when we talk about you know, the future of wealth management, there's so much emphasis on technology and digital. Um, and when we have these discussions, they tend to go almost all the way, right? And yeah. I don't want to say eliminate, but we minimize the importance of that one-to-one in-person interaction. So I- I'm glad that you know while we're talking here and you know, featuring you as one of the more innovative you know, tech-first companies that you can reinforce how valuable it is and how important it is to get on a plane, right? To travel and go see yeah. a client, even if it's once a year, uh, because in the end, I mean, what you're delivering has to be, even if it's not scalable all the time, right? Personal, um, yeah. nothing more yeah. personal than that. And I guess along those lines, one other thing that I wanted to spend a minute on is really this idea of a client experience. Um, and you and I have talked about this before. I feel like it's the most overused term in wealth management. Everybody throws around, yeah, I'm investing in technology to improve the client experience. Um, it The most important you know, element of my firm's success over the next five years will be the ability to deliver you know, a perfect or amazing Fill client the blank. Yeah, Yeah. But no one ever says exactly, one, what that looks like, and two, how they measure it. Um, so I'll ask you, you know, the, those two questions. When you think about you know, a really good client experience, right? how are you defining that? And then when you actually start to execute on it, how are you evaluating whether or not you're hitting and delivering on what you expect, right? Your standards for delivering an excellent client experience. Yeah. So I would agree with you that the words client experience are dramatically overused and probably equally misunderstood. Uh, it's like when people say my tech stack or something like this, right? It's a, it's, it's a jargon that buys us some time to potentially realize that we're not addressing this in a way that's going to win the future. I'll digress on that for a second. Okay. <laughs> client, exp- client experience. I've heard hundreds of people talk at conferences and seen the you know uh, conversations on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. One of the first places that I would start in helping an advisor or a firm think about this, and this is how we do it, is you have to have a benchmark, right? Uh, just saying that you want to have an amazing client experience, but then not actually having this clear definition of what that is. Right. It's like saying you're, you know, I'll steal something from Joe Duran. He did an interview with Real Vision several years ago. It was very impactful in, in our thinking of how we developed LifeWorks, actually. He said something like, if, you know, if, uh, you know, if, if retirement is your, your destination, that's like, you know, saying you're going to go on vacation and the gas station's your destination, right? Uh, I would say the same thing with client experience. If just saying you're going to build an amazing client experience is your objective, but you don't have very clear, specific benchmark that you're using to measure your progress towards it then you're just, again, like going on vacation and the destinations, destinations, the gas station, you're just going to get there, fill back up and then be like, oh, we got to do this again. Right. 
So how did we address it? Well, one, we got really specific back to this idea of hyper-personalization, right? If you can imagine a simple graph where on the, the vertical axis, you have value created for a client. On the horizontal axis, you have scale, right? Meaning the ability to do it at speed and replicate it over and over and over and over, and over again, okay? Robo-advisors, the leading robo-advisors, um, have figured out how to deliver an amazing digital client experience and do it with speed and scale. So we use Wealthfront, right? Mm -hmm. We don't have any individual there that we know. We don't have any financial connections to them, just so everybody's clear on that. But we've opened investment accounts and engaged with all of the leading robo-advisors and a lot of the uh, you know, very modern fintech brokerage and trading platforms. In fact, we've engaged in very specific research to do this. Why? Because they've figured out how to make the client experience so seamless, so immediate, uh, and so easy that they can bring on clients 24-7. But when I talk to the average advisor, most of us are still stuck in this idea of trying to justify why our client experience stinks uh, because, well, it's, you know, we really, it's personal. It's a human-involved element. And I think to myself, but you mean like getting my name, my address, my social number, my date of birth, opening an account, like that's not that personal. Right. 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 And it's different um, from every so what, other digital experience they have in their consumer uh, life. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So the way that we've looked at this, Mark, and this listeners could take this as right or wrong, but my suggestion would be one, get very clear on the client that you're serving and their value on uh, and what they would value from the experience. If you're serving a bunch of people in a local market and you truly believe and you survey them and you talk to them and they value in person, your client experience should lean more heavily towards you hand-holding and walking them through things in person. Makes sense, right? So first clue here is go ask your clients. Most advisors and people listening aren't starting at scratch with zero clients and so they can't go do this research. Advisors, us included, are often very guilty of not in an appropriate way on a regular enough basis asking our clients, what do you actually value about my experience and how can I improve it? So start there. Second piece of advice I would have is pick a benchmark. So ours is one of them is Wealthfront, right? We wanted clients to be able to onboard with LifeWorks and have the process be so simple and easy that they could do it without their advisor. Because why would I be paying an advisor who's one of our most valuable assets at our firm and one of our most valuable assets for a client? Why, why would I want to be paying them or asking them to slow down to type data into a system to create a PDF, to send a DocuSign to the client, then does something else and they become like that's like that for us just seems oxymoronic, right? So when you're thinking about client experience, create benchmarks, go through the process, document it. And then it's a really simple gap analysis, right? You go back to your process, map it out on a whiteboard, map it out on a, you know, an Excel file, something like this, and just say, man, we've got a long ways to go. And the likelihood is that even when we get there, we're never going to be there because preferences, needs, technology, right? Continues to evolve and change over time. So this is really a continuous improvement that has to be done where you're kind of resetting benchmarks and you're reevaluating this on a consistent basis. Not every day. It's not the only thing we should do, but those would be two things I would say that have helped us get out of this endless loop of client experience, client experience, client experience, and not defining it, right? Ask your clients what they value about your experience. Two, find benchmarks that you believe are firms or examples of and they don't even have to be in the industry, right? But that are doing the engagement the way that your clients are going to want it really, really well, and then build towards that race to that point. Yeah. And I appreciate you taking something that can be as esoteric as the client experience and putting it into 
hyper practical terms. And I agree with you. I mean, a client experience can be so many different things. It could be, you know, what somebody says to you when they answer the phone, right. Um, or how they answer the phone, the tone in their voice, all of that. Right. Um, so thank you for putting a framework around it. And you did obviously mention benchmarking and yeah, that is something that I wanted to make sure we touch on, on the podcast here before we wrap up. As we look at growth, right, and the, the research that we did earlier this year, we saw typical firm doubled in size over the last five years, right? They also expect that they will double in size, at least their assets under management, um, over the next five years, right? So we've seen amazing growth. The expectation is that there will be even more you know, growth over the next five years. And a lot of that will come through you know, more efficient, more effective marketing. Um, and you, you've done a phenomenal job with your digital marketing, a lot of the content that you've created, right? And your ability to always be on in a personalized and relevant way. Um, with that, you know, I see more firms now experimenting with digital marketing. There are a number of resources, platforms, software, tools that you can tap into to, to grow through digital marketing in a, in a more efficient and more effective way. Um, that just in my view, creates the need to really have a clear process for determining, mm -hmm. is this a good investment or was this a good investment if I just made it? Um, so I am kind of curious to go inside your mind a little bit. As you're investing in digital marketing and doing more of it, how are you applying you know, the appropriate benchmarks to determine not only is it working, right, but if the return is something that you're happy with? Yeah. So all of these questions, I think, are fundamental to the business plan that an advisor or a firm's running, right? And the first thing that we look at is we define what growth means, right? So one of the common traps that I see in the industry, quick digression, then I'll get to your question about how we benchmark our investments is sure. the idea that market growth should count. We don't count market growth at LifeWorks in our growth because it's not something that we proactively did. It's not something that we can influence. What happens if we have a, a, a 10-year run where we start a decade and end a decade and the market's flat. So the over-reliance on market growth, I think, has provided a lot of overpayment for services to financial firms. So they've added zero new value to their clients, but yet they've increased their comps significantly. That's going to level set. Those types of arbitrages, in my, my opinion, looking historically at other industries, do not last forever. I don't know that they're going to be level set by robos. That, that isn't necessarily the thing, but clients are getting smart to this. Hey, my assets under management, because the market went up, went from a million to 2 million. You went from making 10,000 to 20,000, but you're not providing me any additional services. Okay. So one, I would say, first thing is define growth. Is it net new clients? Is it net new assets? Is it net new revenue? Some of the most interesting firms that I see being created in the REA space are measuring net new revenue because- they're not as concerned with AUM because they're running flat fee models or they're running a monthly subscription model or they have some different unique business model. So I think that's that's one. Every firm that wants to grow or every advisor that wants to grow should have a defined client acquisition strategy and should, if they have no data points, they should start at just guess what the budget should be and do some research. Once they start having data points, they should be looking at how much of their revenue their gross revenue, should they be reinvesting in the future growth of the business? If you look at TD Ameritrade's FA Insight study from a couple of years ago, it was an abysmal like 1.6% of firms' revenue across the, the RAAs that were surveyed sure. was reinvested into marketing. Very abysmal there. So there's a distinction here that needs to be made between shotgun type of marketing. And that might be like, I have a website, I subscribe to a service that generates, you know, 
emails or social media posts for me that's kind of broad and, and out there. There's probably some value there. But what we've done and what I would encourage advisors to do is get really clear on who is the client or customer that you believe you add the most value to and you love working with, right? That's one. Two, map out a buyer's journey. A buyer's journey basically is a a step-by-step process of saying, taking somebody from, they don't know that my firm or myself as an advisor exists, to they become aware of me, to they start considering us for hire, to they hire us, and what are all those touch points in between, right? When you have that mapped out, then you can step back and say, when it comes to digital marketing, there is a lot of avenues, right? There's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok, right? YouTube, Google ads. There's a, there's a, unfortunately it's uh it's almost like a black hole, right? So you then have to get clear on where you think your audience is going to be. And then I would work with a firm or, or a contractor to try and help build these marketing funnels. And these are very specifically designed funnels or tools to go from somebody not knowing who you are, to being aware of you, to considering you, to buying from you. So Real quick example, if I can, at LifeWorks, how we've done this successfully, we run live webinars, right? So we advertise on social media. We're targeting, say, the 55 to 65-year-old early or near retiree, and we're running live webinars, right? Which took some investment and equipment and people, and you know, we're three and a half, four years into this and spent a lot of money doing it, but the investments paid off. We have a system that we can allocate you know, our budget to. And we have a really high degree of consistency on the return, yeah. right? So our average client that we're acquiring right now, the cost is some around $3,500, $3,600, okay? They generally have about $1.7 million investable assets. We get 50% of that generally within the first 60 days of them engaging with us. So rough benchmarks to somebody put in your head. We charge 80 basis points uh, you know, for our AUM fee. Every million dollars is worth roughly 8,000 in revenue in the first 12 months. I'm spending, say, 3,600 to $4,000 to do that. That doesn't count my, my overhead costs and my salaries and my fixed costs. That's just marketing ad spend, right? But I know from industry statistics that the average client stays with an advisor for 10 plus years, right? So I'm happy to make that investment today. And that's very much different from you know, having a strategy that's focused more on asking for referrals or maybe the traditional like going to networking events. The difference here is that we have a predictable and more scientific approach to it where we can scale it with budget and then change the uh, the offering, improve the processes, change how we're engaging. And we can grow our business that way. And that's essentially what LifeWorks has done. I appreciate that. And again, I use the word framework, right? It, it may not be easy or even possible for any of our listeners to replicate what you're doing, but they can absolutely learn from it. And as you talk about just the cost of acquisition, it's not that foreign from if you look at some of the referral programs that the custodians have and you're paying, you know, 25 right. basis points, right? Um, you can just think of you know, your investment in digital marketing on a per client basis in a somewhat similar way, right? The cost will vary, but um, there are some similarities there for sure in the way you've outlined that. So thank you for getting into the specifics and as much detail as you did there. Um, Ron, this has covered a lot of ground, uh, as you'd expect when we talk about the wealth management firm of the future. Um, so I appreciate you taking as much time as you have here. And I, I think it's safe to say that what you're doing right, is very much you know, building the wealth management firm of the future, right? Um, but in real time. Um, so we will absolutely have to have you back just to talk through some of the progress, some of the things that you continue to learn. 
And you've been great about sharing your experience um, with the wealthmanagement.com audience and also with our events audiences uh, over the years as well. So Ron, thank you so much for taking the time to be here on the next podcast. Appreciate it. Uh, absolutely enjoyed it, Mark. Uh, love to help anytime. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, you can find my profile on LinkedIn uh, or Twitter. Happy to go into more details or help point people in the right direction. So absolutely. You are easy to find. That is for sure. Right? <laughs> uh, but again, thank you so much, Ron. I appreciate it. And thank you to everybody for listening to this first episode of the next podcast. Again, I'm Mark Bruno, the Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa. And we look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the next podcast. Take care.